0: Amen, amen. Well, thank you so much, Braden, for leading us in that, and for the worship team for leading us in worship through song. Y'all, it's great to see y'all once again. I'm excited about today, uh, and hopefully you are as well, as we are concluding our series through John. We started this series in the middle of August, and we are finishing John chapter 12 today. It's crazy, 32 sermons later. Well, this will be the 32nd sermon. uh, We will finish through the first half of the book of John, and I'll tell you, if you feel like it's been long, just be encouraged. I left out a lot of stuff. So... Um, I'm excited to get, to get to finish this up today and excited about the discussion, and then starting next week we'll begin a Proverbs series uh, throughout the summer. So if you would open up to John chapter 12 with me, John chapter 12, and if you remember if you were here last week, we finished John chapter 12, but I want to circle back and look at two verses specifically, and really to kind of connect John chapter 1 to John chapter 12 where we are, and really think about the overarching purpose of John, which we're called to believe in, but what's the overarching purpose of John 1 through 12? We'll find it in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 28, specifically verse 27 and 28, but I want to begin by reading John 12, verses 23 through 28, and it says this, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, or whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, verse 27 and 28 is the key for this morning. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So Emily and I were married in August of 2013. and 10 days after we got married, we moved to North Carolina. We did the ultimate leave in cleave. And so whenever we got there, we were uh, supposed to be there for several years for seminary, really four years for seminary. But after a year, uh, the Lord called us to Jackson, Mississippi. I got offered a really good internship to be able to go there and learn and grow as I'm, as I'm learning, also put some of this to practice, and so I was there doing an internship. Well, while I was there, or while we were there at First Baptist Jackson, there was a time whenever, uh, shortly after we got there, the pastor left, and so we had interim pastors come through, and for several months, I don't remember how long it was, but for several months we had a different pastor in the pulpit every single Sunday, and I'll never forget, after, after several months, I was in the office of our senior adult pastor, because most of them are or, or a little bit crazy, he was a crazy guy. I love Tom Washburn, awesome guy. But our senior adult pastor, I would go there, just sit there and listen, because he would pro- provide plenty of comedic relief. But we were sitting there, we were talking, and we were talking about the services and all the pastors who had come through, and I will never forget, Emily knows where I'm going with this, I will never forget a statement he made to me that I said to her that has stuck with me ever since that day. He said, Merrick used to, Whenever a pastor would stand up to talk, he would tell people about God. But for some reason today, it seems like so many people stand up and they tell people about man. They talk about man. They don't talk about God. They look at the Bible and they say it's about, it's about man. And we look at man rather than looking at the Bible and seeing it is about God. And I can remember I, I left that day, and that, that one statement has had a profound impact on me. That as a pastor, my job isn't to teach you about man. My job is to teach you about God. Whenever we come to God's word, we don't come to learn more about man, though we do learn about man, but we come to learn about God. Y'all, the truth is this, life is not about us. The Bible is not ultimately about us. It is a book about God. Indeed, we see all of Jesus' life, even, ultimately is about God and about God's glory. It's not ultimately about us. And this is the topic to which I wanna look at as we close off this series And ask me a simple question. What is the overarching reason why Jesus came? Why did he come? And I hope this morning you'll see that he came to bring God glory. The title of the sermon this morning is the glory of God. And we're going to look at how through Jesus' coming, his living, his dying, all of it was ultimately for the glory of God. And what I want to propose to you this morning, the question I want you to answer this morning is this. Do you understand that all of your life, including even your own salvation, Is about God being glorified. Do you understand that all of life, including even your own salvation, is about God being glorified? We're going to look at these two verses in John chapter 12 specifically and look at the ultimate reason why Jesus came. And and, and if if you're used to hearing me teach, usually I'm going to walk through and give you points as we go. This morning is going to be a little bit different. As you walk through, I'm going to ask several questions that I think need to be answered as we look at this topic from John 1 to 12. And then answer those questions as we go through, give us some application and final response questions as we close. So let's begin, read again verse 27 of John chapter 12. Jesus at the end of his ministry, remember this is the last time he's publicly seen before he is crucified. Verse 27, he says, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So Jesus says, my soul is troubled. John is putting it lightly. Our English doesn't do a very good job here. He was, he was wrecking havoc inside of his own soul. He was in agony. You see this is as it grows even more so as he gets to the garden right before he's betrayed and he goes to the cross. In Luke chapter 22, we see this, verse 31 through 44, we see where he's praying. He says, God, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass, but not my will but your will be done. But look at Luke 22, verse 44. It says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Y'all, we cannot even fathom the agony that Jesus was feeling before he went to the cross. And while we may think about it, yeah, he's going to go and die a brutal death, but it is much more than that. Jesus is about to take on a lot more than just a human death from human people. The cross means so much more than just a brutal way of dying. And I want you to see that as as, as we walk through here. It was gut-wrenching for him, and yet he chose to obey anyway. It's incredible. He says, not my will, but your will be done. I like the way one scholar says, the the horror of death and the order of his obedience were meeting together in this moment. You know, the first question I want to ask is simply this. Why did Jesus choose to obey the Father? Why did Jesus choose to obey the Father? Why did he say, not my will, but your will be done? Why? Why did he ultimately go to the cross? Now, we might say very quickly, I think maybe the first answer we'd say is, why did Jesus go to the cross? Well, because he loves us. But I want to ask you, who's the focal point of that statement? We are. Who's the end of that statement? We are. Maybe he he went to the cross to redeem us, absolutely. But what's the focal point of that statement? It's us. But I want you to see, how does Jesus respond whenever he says, this is the reason for which I came? Verse 28, he simply says this, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. In other words, why did Jesus choose to obey that God would be glorified? The overarching reason why Jesus did everything that he did was so that God would be glorified, to the glory of God, that God would be glorified even in the cross. Now, in saying this, I want to begin or go ahead and take you to another question, because I think this is an interesting, an interesting topic, but also an interesting question. We talk a lot about the glory of God. Most people, if you've been around church at some point, you've heard that you were created for the glory of God. You've heard that everything that you are to do, you're to do for the glory of God. But I think it's odd. If you were to define what the glory of God is, how would you do it? If somebody says, hey, what does the glory of God mean? Well, if you don't know this, that's a very slippery question. It's hard to kind of just nail down and answer the question. Indeed, I spent most of my time this week trying to answer this one question. What actually is the glory of God? What is it? How do we define it? If we're to live for God's glory, then what even is it? As I looked, I found a lot of help from one pastor, John Piper, and he says it like this. He says, the reason that trying to define the word glory is so difficult is it is a lot more like the word beauty than it is the word basketball. So if you just say, Merrick, what is a basketball? I could tell you pretty simply. It's a rubber sphere, you put air in the middle of it, a rubber sphere, If you have a good basketball, you have leather around that rubber sphere that's aired up. You can dribble it. You can shoot it. If you're like me, you can dunk it. You know, you can do all these sort of things. Thank you. Some people laughed. The early service didn't even budge at all, which maybe they just thought I could. Who knows? I'll take that. But a basketball, I I could tell you easy what it is. You dribble it. You shoot with it. It's very easy to define a basketball. It's very easy to define a pew, to define a speaker, to define these things. But what if I were to say, define the word beauty? It's a little bit more difficult. Right? You try to think, well, beauty is, well, it's kind of different things. I could tell you the way I would define it. I'd say stand up. Right? I wouldn't embarrass my wife like that. But beauty is a slippery word. Right? And it's very, very much so like glory. The word glory can be difficult to define. And I'll just show you a little bit of the difficulty whenever we come to say, okay, what is the glory of God? I want you to see this. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is before the throne of God, and he hears the angels singing this. It says, holy, 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 Isaiah 6.3, 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I want you to see some of the difficulty in defining the word glory because that sentence doesn't make sense. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, shouldn't it say the whole earth is full of his holiness? Wouldn't that make sense? If God is holy, 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 shouldn't it say the whole earth is full of his holiness? But it doesn't say that. It says, he is holy and the whole earth is filled with his glory. How in the world do you, do you define that? It's, it's interesting. I love John Piper his, his comment on this. He says, the glory of God is the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to comprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. It's where you can see the holiness of God. And it isn't just about the holiness of God, it's all spheres of who God is. The glory of God is him making himself visible to us, to which I would give you a definition like this. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the beauty and goodness of his abundant perfections made manifest. If you think that, if that's a rough definition, I've merged together all sorts of ones I've heard this week to make my own, so hopefully that's, that's at least somewhat understandable, But the glory of God is the beauty and goodness of his abundant perfections made manifest. It's the beauty of who he is revealed. That's why we can see the glory of God. It speaks of who he is. Let me explain it to you this way. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, the heavens' creation speaks of the glory of God. How? How does does it do that? Well, if you look at creation, you see all sorts of things. You see the power of God, right? God's power is put on display. You see his glory through that. God's omniscience, you see it on display through creation. The beauty of God you see on display. The goodness of God you see put on display. The bigness of God you see put on display. That's why throughout you hear all these these terms that talk about God in relation to his creation to tell you how majestic and, and big he is. Isaiah 40, verse 12 says that God holds all of the water of the world in the hollow of his hand. I don't know if you realize how little your hand can actually hold, but there's not a whole lot in the hollow of your hand, and God can hold all the water of the world in the hollow of his hand. Creation speaks of the glory of God. It speaks of his grandeur. I want you to think of it like this. So if you and I were to leave right now, and hopefully you aren't desiring to leave right now, if we were to leave right now and we were to go to Disney World, Let's say we drive, we're going to Orlando, we get 30 minutes from Orlando, and we see this incredible sign that says Walt Disney World, 30 minutes ahead, or 30 miles ahead. Now imagine if you were around with me, and I just pulled over at the sign, I said, all right, y'all, let's let's take up shop right here, let's get out, let's camp, let's experience Disney World. You would go, what are you talking about, Merrick? We're 30 miles away, right? All that a sign does is it points to Walt Disney World, in the same way all that creation does is point... To the glory of God. y'all. the purpose of creation isn't just for us to look and say, wow, this is awesome. The purpose of the pleasures of our life from food to music to relationships isn't for us to go, man, this is where it's at. It's for us to look at that and go, wow, how glorious is our God. How incredible is our God. He gave us everything ultimately for his glory that we might look to him and be enamored with him. So that is the glory of God. But we see Jesus prays to the Father, and he says this, Father, glorify your name. So if we know what the glory of God is, well, what does it mean for for, for God to glorify his name? I think we need to understand that word as well. Well, the Greek word doxazo, many of you maybe have heard of doxology. It's a a phrase or a hymn of praise, if you will. Well, doxa is the word glory. Doxology or, or doxazo is to glorify to extol, to praise, to magnify. And I love the idea of that. So to glorify God is to magnify him. You can think of it like this. If you were to take God's glory and put it up with magnify, you get the word glorify. You see that? It should be up on the screen for you. What does it mean to glorify God? To glorify God is to magnify the glory of God. You take glory plus magnify, you put them together, you essentially get the word glorify. That's the way that it helped me at least think about it. So to glorify God is to magnify him. Now let me be clear, whenever we think of magnification, you can think of several different things, but I I, want to explain the difference. So you can magnify something by putting it under a microscope. That's one way to magnify something. You know, many of you know I was a chemistry major. Unfortunately, I've spent way too much time around a microscope. But if you ever used one, you know, you take something that's really small, you put it under the microscope, you mess with the tool until you put it in focus, and something that was really, really tiny, really small gets larger. Well, that's not what we mean whenever we talk about magnifying God. It's much more like a telescope than a microscope. Think about it. What does a telescope do? You use a telescope to see things that are really far away. It doesn't make them bigger. It brings the things that are really far away closer, right? That you might be able to see it. What does it mean to glorify God? It's to bring God's glory closer that you may be able to see it. It's brings something that seems far away Closer that you may be able to see it, to experience it. This is why Jesus chose the cross that God would be glorified, that God would be magnified, that He would bring the glory of God closer through His Son. Just explain a few things there. Jesus chose the cross in order for God's glory to be displayed. There we see His glory, His goodness, His holiness, His perfections. The whole reason Jesus came was to magnify the glory of God. That's why He says, "Father, glorify Your name." Now, I want you to see. Something interesting here, God the Father actually audibly speaks back to Jesus. It's very interesting. Look again at verse 28. It says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It's interesting to note that there are three times throughout Jesus' ministry where God audibly speaks and people hear him. At the beginning of his ministry, in the middle of his ministry, and the end of his ministry. At the beginning, you see this baptism. He's baptized, came out of the water. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The middle of his life is the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, they go up on a mountain together. God appears, and he says what to them? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Then we get to the very end of his life, right before he's crucified, and we see him say, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I have glorified. In other words, all of Jesus' life has been that, glorifying God, magnifying God. I'll explain it to you in three ways like this. In Jesus' coming, he glorified God. The whole reason that Jesus came was to bring God closer to us. We talked about this at the very beginning. In John chapter 1, verses 14 and verse 18, where we even began our series. It says, and the word became flesh. The word, remember, you can think of it as the message of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How do you know that God is full of grace and truth? Jesus brought those truths to us. He brought his goodness, his beauty, his perfections, and made them manifest that we might see his glory. And it's full of grace and truth. Now go down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The whole reason Jesus came was to make God known to us, to bring him closer to us. So in Jesus' coming, God was magnified. He was glorified. But even in Jesus' life, we cannot mistake the fact that as you walk through John 1 through 12, John is writing that we might believe, but you notice Jesus does everything he does that he might be glorified. That's the ultimate reason for all of it. I'll just give you two examples from the first sign that he does to the last sign that he does. If you remember in John chapter 2, we see that Jesus is at a wedding feast and they run out of wine. Now, if you remember in that day, I told you that wine was a synonymous word for joy. This week-long festivity, if they were to run out of food or wine provisions, then it would be considered a joyless party. It would have been an embarrassment to the people who were providing for the couple that was getting married. And so Jesus' mom comes and says, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus makes wine, right? Or he turns water into wine. And he does so, why? To keep the people from shame, yes. To provide for them, yes. To bring joy back, I told you, whenever we walk through that, it's the idea of Jesus has joy that is abundant and full. But why did he do it? John chapter 2, verse 11 says this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. Why did Jesus do it? To show his glory. He was saying something about himself. You go to the very last of the signs that Jesus does. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Well, you could say he loves Lazarus. Absolutely, we see that. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. Yes, absolutely. But why does he do it? What's the underlying motive of all of it? Well, Jesus tells us at the beginning, before he ever even does it. John 11, verse four. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, He says this, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What was the purpose of it? That Jesus might be magnified, right? The whole purpose of Jesus' life and his ministry was to glorify God, to bring God closer to us. And now what we see is God the Father tells Jesus, I have glorified my name in your life, and now I'm about to glorify it in your death. In Jesus' death, he even glorifies God. What will he do through the cross? It's that very thing. Will he save us through it? Yes, absolutely, but that's one of the means of God being glorified. Let me explain it to you this way. John chapter 13, 31 through 32, a chapter after this, right after Judas leaves the room, he's going and getting ready to betray him, Jesus says this. It says, when he, meaning Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You think, my goodness, John, you should have copied it differently, right? There's a lot of glorifying going on there. But what we see is Jesus glorifies God by going to the cross, and God the Father glorifies Jesus by his obedience to the cross. Indeed, it's through the path of suffering that Jesus is given the name that is above every name, to which everyone one day will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we see is all of it is wrapped up in God being glorified. And honestly, the cross is where God's glory is put on grand display. I'll talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes. Y'all, it's incredible. At the cross, you see God's glory put on display nowhere else, like nowhere else you see in the Bible. At the cross, you see the sovereignty of God. You see the mercy and grace of God. You see the justice of God. You see the wrath of God. You see, the righteousness of God, and you can go on and on of all of it, you see, when you look at the cross. That's what makes Paul say something like this in Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice he doesn't just say, I boast in Christ. What does he boast in? I boast in the cross. You see, God did something through the cross like what he had done at no other point in history. There's something unique that happened at the cross, of Jesus going to the cross. And I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit and show you this by going to a very common text that many people reference. It's in the Roman road, to show you the point of the cross, one of the things that Jesus was doing at the cross, how his glory was being displayed. I'm going to show you. You're going to turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 23 and following. I said this earlier, it's kind of funny, Romans 3.23 is one of the first verses many people memorize, and it's just about how sinful we are, which is kind of comical in some ways. But Romans 3.23 and following, it says this, "...for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, as a sacrifice by His blood." To be received by faith. Now I want you to see this next sentence in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in the divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So why did Jesus go to the cross? Well, it was to show the righteousness of God. Why are we redeemed through the cross? To show the righteousness of God. This is why he passed over former sins. What in the world is he saying there? I don't know how much of the Old Testament you've read, but if you read through the Old Testament, there should be a problem that becomes apparent very quickly, and that is that, why is it that all in the world, all this evil is going on, and yet it seems like God is doing nothing about it? Have you ever looked at the leaders of Israel and wondered, how in the world did God use those people? How did God not judge them? How did God use that wicked nation to enact punishment on them? How did God do... Yo, the question of the Old Testament isn't where's the mercy of God or the grace of God. It's everywhere. He could have just smited all of us in Genesis chapter 3, but he doesn't. What we see, the question that the Old Testament asks us is where is the justice of God? All of the injustice that's going on around, where is the justice of God? If he is righteous, if he is good, why doesn't he do something about this? And you see God's people over and over even saying this to him. Habakkuk is a case in point text. We're saying, God, come do something. In Habakkuk 1.5, God says back to him, he says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your day you wouldn't believe if I told you. And then he tells them, I'm going to use the Babylonians to send y'all into exile. And Habakkuk goes, what? Are you kidding me? Where is your justice, God? Malachi, very end of the Old Testament, Malachi 2.17, God is speaking to his people and he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Friends, the whole Old Testament is screaming, is God really good? How could God let all of this go on? What Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 is he looked over sin to put all of it on Jesus. The righteousness of God is displayed at the cross because God said, no, I didn't look over them. I delayed their judgment and put them on him. I didn't look over them. I didn't excuse them, if you will. I overlooked them until Jesus would come and pay for all of it. Now, this is the point even of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. You see, in Hebrews, or in the Old Testament, God tells his people, if you sin, you know, get a lamb, get a bull, put your hand on the head of the lamb or the bull, and a priest will kill it So symbolizing your sin being transferred to the bull. The only problem with that is that never really would save anyone. In Hebrews, we see the writer tell us the blood of goats and bulls can't save anybody. What's interesting is even people in the Old Testament knew that. If You go read Psalm 51, David, right after he sins with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah, he says, God, I would give you sacrifice if you delighted in that. But the delight of God or the sacrifices of God is a broken heart, a contrite spirit. What's David saying? David's saying, I know that that doesn't actually atone for my sin. That was just a picture of that lamb, of a future lamb of God who would come to pay for the sin of the world. So the cross is about the justice of God. It's about the righteousness of God. It's about God saying, no, I did not just excuse all the mess that's happened. Rather, I put all of it on my son. But not just sins from the past. Notice what else is said. Romans chapter three, verse 26. It says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time as well so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus in other words God didn't just take the punishment for all of the past sins at the cross Jesus took all the punishment for the present sins and all future sins as well in other words all the specific sins that you and I do some people think they get away with what they do it's just not true You look at the injustice in the world that is today, you think people get away with it. It's just not true. One day they will stand before God and they will have to give an account. For all of us now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should know that everything that you do, all the sins that you do, they're they're not excused. They were put on Jesus. He paid for all of them personally. What am I trying to say? I'm saying your present sexual sin, he took the punishment for. Your current issue with anger, he took the punishment for. Your current sin and greed, he took the punishment for. Your current sin with whatever aspect of your life was put on Jesus' back to show that God was just. He doesn't pass over sin, He doesn't just excuse sin. Somebody has to pay for it, and Jesus said, I did that. It's to show the righteousness of God. Y'all, our sin is not overlooked, it's paid for. And this is why the cross grieved Jesus so deeply. It wasn't that he was just about to go die a horrible death. No, that was just a piece of it. It was that he was about to take the full and righteous and just wrath of God for all of the sin of the world and put it on his own shoulders and take it from God. Friends, we can't even understand how excruciating that would be. Jesus, who existed with God for all eternity past, was now about to be separated from God for the first time ever. Jesus says, I will do that. I will do that to put the glory of God on display. He carried all the weight of all sin and put it on his back. Now, I've heard some people ask the question, why did God even have to do that? If God is really God, couldn't God have just said, you know, snapped his fingers and said, everybody's forgiven. All sin is forgiven. I've heard people ask that. How is God really glorified in killing of his son? Well, you misunderstand the question. You misunderstand what Jesus did, and and even more so, you misunderstand the idea of justice. Let me explain it to you this way. If you were to walk out, let's say at the end of the service, you leave, you go to the bathroom, you come back and your stuff is gone. You don't have your keys or anything like that. You go out and your car is actually gone. And you find out that I actually took your car. I found you left your purse or left your keys, wherever they were. I went, beeped around until I got your car. I took off. Let's say I wrecked your car. Let's say you didn't know about that. You go out and you find out where your car is. You see where your car is wrecked, but there's nobody there. Do you just say I It's no big deal. I'll let bygones be bygones. No, most everybody's going to call the police because why? They want to find out who did it. And typically they'll say something like, somebody's got to pay for this, right? A wrong demands a form of payment. Now imagine if you amp that up a little bit. If someone shoot and kills someone in your family, you wouldn't say, ah, just let them get off. You would want justice, right? Somebody has to pay for it, right? And even that isn't gonna fix the brokenness in your heart, right? Friends, do you realize that sin is an affront against the God of the universe? Sin is telling God, even though you created me, I can do it better. Even though you created this this in my heart for this, I'm gonna put it over here. Even though you created me to worship you and make much of you, I think my name sounds better in the limelight than yours. Do you not realize the capital offense that punishment is against God and that is what God did through Jesus. He said, Instead of giving you what you deserve, I'm going to put it out on Jesus. And Jesus took all the wrath of God that he might be just and the justifier. Y'all, this is incredible. Look back at verses 3 and following, or verse 23 and following. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's glorious standard. And it says, and all of us are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God himself, God put Jesus forward as a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Do you realize how incredible what he's saying right there is? He's saying God put Jesus forward that you and I might be justified. I love the way J.D. Greer explains this. If you wanna think of what justified is, we like this in the South. Just throw the whole word together. Justified never sinned. To be justified is just as if I'd never sinned. In other words, Jesus took this payment, our payment for our sin, on his back that he might be just and the justifier. And all you do is you place your faith in what Jesus has already done. Is that not incredible? God says, I take your sin and I put it on his back, and he paid for it that you might be justified, that it would be God looks at you just as if you had never sinned. You are holy, you are righteous, you are accepted. Because of Jesus. Y'all, this is unbelievable. This points us to God to say, what a great God. Do You know what that is? That's glorifying him. It calls us to pause and say, how incredible is our God? Well, that gives glory to God when we do that, right? And that's just one of the reasons why Jesus came at the cross, to show his righteousness. I'll tell it to you this way. At the cross, Jesus magnified the love of God by paying for our sin, at the cross, Jesus magnified the justice of God by atoning for our sins. At the cross, Jesus magnified, brought closer to the righteousness of God by making payment for past, present, and future sin. At the cross, Jesus magnified the wrath of God to show that sin deserves punishment, to show how much God hates sin and he took that wrath for us. At the cross, Jesus magnified the forgiveness of God, being an offering acceptable to God in our place. At the cross Jesus magnified the mercy and grace of God by not giving us what we deserve and taking and giving us what we don't deserve. At the cross we see the magnified at the cross Jesus magnified the sovereignty of God by dying according to plan as he said he would for thousands of years before Jesus ever came. At the cross we could keep going on and on and on. We could talk about how the cross showed the holiness, the omnipotence, the omniscience, the humility. You could go through all these attributes. At the cross you see the glory of God put on display. You see, looking through a telescope, you see our great God coming close to us saying, this is me. Friends, this is the purpose of Jesus' whole life, to put the glory of God on grand display. I won't read it, but this is why Romans 3.27, the very next thing Paul says is who can boast? Our boasting is excluded. We can't say anything. All we can say is thank you, Right? Because God did everything through his son. Jesus came to glorify God. He died to glorify God. Everything he did was ultimately to be to the praise of God's glory. And the one overarching point of application that I'm going to draw application from is simply this. The whole purpose of your and my life is to glorify God. The whole reason that you and I are here is to glorify him. I want to break that down in, in, into three ways briefly as we look at application, how this applies to us. And first and foremost, we need to understand this. We were created for this. We were created to glorify God. That's the whole purpose of our existence, to glorify him. You know, almost everybody in this room probably knows that we are created differently than a dog. We are different than a tree. We are different than any other aspect of creation. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his masterpiece. You could translate that his work of art. His special creation is you and it's me. And he says that we are image bearers. Hear that again. We bear the very image of God. Why do we bear the image of God? That we might glorify him, that we might reflect him, right? That we might show the world him. Isaiah 43, 6 through 7 says it this way. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Now, some people even go to this and say, wow, that sounds pretty selfish. So the whole reason I'm created is to glorify God. Does it sound like like God is just this cosmic deity who says, I need more people to add to my glory? Friends, you misunderstand it. There is not a single thing you and I can do to add to anything of God. Living for God's glory does not add glory to him, rather it reveals the glory that he already has. Us being his followers adds nothing to his glory. Let me explain it to you this way. Elon Musk, owner of Tesla and about 50 other things, he's worth tens of billions of dollars, right? He's a billionaire. I want you to imagine if one day he came to one of us, one of you, and he says, you know what, I want you to come and I just want you to use my resources. Go where you want, see what you want, spend what you want, drive what you want, eat what you want, do all of those things. There's not a person in their right mind who would go, man, he's lucky to have me, right? There's not anyone who says, check out my saving account. You just, you just upped a lot right there. He'd look at my net worth and he'd go, I didn't even know it was possible to be that low, right? We wouldn't add anything to him. Really, he would just be allowing us to use his resources out of I guess the goodness of his own heart in that regard. I want you to think about God. God is so glorious that he created us to experience his glory because he's good. If God is the most grand thing on this universe, if God is the most grand aspect of our lives, if God is the most grand, then wouldn't it make sense for him to say I want to create people to share, to share my glory with them, that they might experience me. We don't add anything to to his glory. Rather, we get to experience it. And our joy is only found whenever we find it in him. Whenever we find the glory of Christ, we recognize how incredible he is, and that's where we find our soul begins to connect. We find our lives begin to connect. We find joy begin to come. We find satisfaction come. Fulfillment comes through this, which means this very clearly. And this is a hard truth. We must tell ourselves over and over and over again, y'all, your life is not about you. My life is not about me. I was not created to show you any gifting I have to say, man, merit none. All of us were created to glorify God. But y'all, why is it that we seem to get this messed up? All of us do, right? That's why so much of our thought process is self-centered. God, why me? God, why this? God, why that? Instead of what Jesus said, your will, not mine. I want you to imagine it like this say that you were to leave today you were to fly and you were to go to the Grand Canyon let's say you were to get there and after you got there let's say that you saw me there now for some of you that would be an incredible shock I saw somebody at Walmart this week and they looked at me like you leave the church I'm like yes I actually go out in public but if you were to see me at at the Grand Canyon it might be kind of neat kind of cool but imagine you were trying to take pictures and I were to keep getting in the way of the camera like hey I'm right here what are you taking a picture of like, there's nothing to see. Like, like, what are you doing? And you're trying to take a family picture, and I will stand in the back and just kind of do like this. You would say, Merrick, get out of the way. We're not here to see you. We're here to see the Grand Canyon. I, I would venture to even say you would understand how silly would it be for me to stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon as people showed up and say, hey, I'm right here. Check me out. Yeah, Grand Canyon, it's whatever, but check out me. You'll think about how silly that would be, Right? How much sillier is it to think that we were created for ourselves? How much sillier is it to think that that we can withstand the glory that other people might get? Remember what he said to even the religious leaders. If you try and get glory from other people, you don't understand me. Friends, how crazy is it to live our lives that we might be known? Think about this. You stand next to the Grand Canyon, and no person can hold a candle to it, and yet God says that is just the tip of the iceberg of my glory I wanted to show you. But think about it, he says, even greater than that, the Grand Canyon can't do anything that you can do. It can't proclaim the gospel to someone. It can't be the hands and feet of Christ to somebody. Yes, there's glory in the Grand Canyon, but there's more glory in one son or daughter of the king than any piece of creation in this world. Think about that. That's what God does for you. He says, I loved you so much to make you an image bearer of me. You can have a greater impact than anything that is around you. And friends, I don't know about you, but if I'm next to the ocean, if I'm next to the Grand Canyon, if I'm next to a starlit sky, I feel really small. And yet a God that big still says, I love you. I care about you. I desire to know you, that you might see me. Friends, legitimately, you can think of it like this. You and I were just created telescopes. As people see us, they should see God. As people see us live, we should bring God closer and glorify his name that's why we were created second point I want you to see is we are saved to glorify God the very purpose of our salvation is God you've heard me say this I don't know how many times throughout throughout our John series but you were not created just to go to heaven salvation isn't about you just going to heaven it's about you knowing God I'm going to ask the question, why? Well, because even your salvation is for the glory of God. That's the whole purpose of it. Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 14. I won't belabor this, but I just want you to see. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, Paul says it this way. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? What's the goal? What's the end to the praise of his glory then it goes on verse 13 in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it for what what's the goal to the praise of his glory Friends, everything that God does in our life is for his glory This is why salvation should produce an incredible sense of, of gratitude in our own hearts to understand what God has done for us. This is why understanding what Jesus has done for you should cause you to want to live for him, right? The glory of Christ is displayed on the cross. Which leads to the third point. We were created to glorify God. We were saved to glorify God. Lastly, we are called to live to glorify God. The reason that whenever you come to faith in Christ, you don't just fall over and go straight to be with heaven, is because God has you here to magnify him, to bring him closer, to influence other people. I'll tell you this way, Mark Batterson, in, a, in his book titled If, he speaks of it like this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, we're not going to go there, Paul likens believers to shining stars. And the word shining there is the word reflecting. We're like reflecting stars. What's interesting, Mark Batterson goes into this a little bit more. He says, planets in our solar system don't have light on their own. Rather, all that planets do is reflect light. This is actually called albedo. Albedo is the amount of light that is reflected off of an outer space planet or something like that, the moon. It's how much light it actually reflects. And so there's different reflection ratings based on the planet or the object. For instance, the planet Venus reflects 65% of the light that hits it. That's why it's easy to see Venus. One of the first things that people found whenever they used a telescope was Venus. But also you think about the moon. It's A little bit easier for us to see because it's a lot closer to us. But the moon, if you didn't know, the moon doesn't produce light on its own. There's the bubble burster for today. But the moon just reflects the light from the sun. It has a 7% albedo rate. In other words, 7% of the light that hits it is reflected to us. And then he connects it like this. He says, in a similar sense, each person has a spiritual albedo. You cannot produce the light in yourself. You can only reflect it. And the goal of every believer is 100% reflectivity, to 100% reflect God in your life. Now, the reason that we talk about obedience so much is that is how God is reflected in your life. How does Jesus glorify God? Through obedience. How did Jesus have the 100% reflectivity rate, if you will? He obeyed the will of God in everything. In other words, God is glorified in us when we worshipfully obey him. He'll say this later on, John chapter 15, verse eight. Jesus says, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, the spirit comes in us, and we have the fruit of the Spirit, and it comes out in our lives that God might be glorified, right? This is the reason that we obey Him. This is the reason why in everything that we do, we seek to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 would say it this way, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. 100% reflectivity. No matter what you're doing, at your job, at your home, wherever you're at, y'all, we're called to reflect the glory of God in everything. Which leads me to just asking you three questions as I conclude this morning. The first question is simply this. Have you seen the glory of Jesus on the cross? Have you seen the glory of Jesus on the cross? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about how all of us have this veil over our face. We can't see. We're spiritually blind. And unless the veil is removed, we'll never be able to see But the way that the veil is removed is by seeing the glory of Christ. If anyone turns to me, the veil is removed. He sees the glory of Christ, and it's actually through the glory of Christ that we are transformed, we are sanctified, if you will, made holy, made righteous. So the question, if you ask someone, do you know Jesus, it's simply you could ask them this. Have you seen the glory of Jesus in the cross? Have you seen that Jesus took your sin personally, and he paid for them? Have you recognized the things that you don't want anybody else in the world to know about? He knows, and he put them on his back voluntarily saying, I am righteous, and this will be paid for. I can't overlook it. I'm going to pay for it. And he calls us to place our faith in him. This is the gift he gives to us. He says, I've paid for it. You're called to repent. Don't seek to live that way anymore. And place your faith in me and you will be justified. It's just as if you've never sinned. Friends, have you done that? Have you given your life to Christ? If not, I would tell you this morning, will you pray and ask God? Say, God, forgive me of my sin. I believe in you of what you've done. I see the glory of the cross in what you've done for me, and I want to place my faith in you. If you say, Merrick, yes, I know I've given my life to Christ, I would ask you, have you gotten over it? Is what Jesus done on the cross your boast, or is it an afterthought? Is the cross of Christ just something you know, or is it something you boast in, which means Paul did what? He contemplated and continually thought about and talked about, man, what God did on the cross. Friends, if you're a Christian, you have a weird and unique opportunity. Even whenever you sin, you have a chance to say, but this doesn't get the victory because God did. Even in your sin, you can look to the cross and say, God, thank you for paying for it for me. If you know Jesus, have you gotten over what he's done at the cross? Maybe this morning you just need to say, God, show me your glory again. Show me the glory of what you've done for me. Make it personal again today for me. Have you seen the glory of Jesus on the cross? The second question I would ask you is, do you earnestly desire to see and experience his glory? Do you earnestly desire to see God magnified? Do you desire to see him? Do you desire to learn about him? Do you desire to know him? Friends, this is what makes the Bible the most incredible and untouchable book in the world. It is the only thing that is written specifically to shine the light of the glory of Christ in our eyes every time we open it and read it. You want to see the glory of God? Yeah, you can go out to creation. You can see that. But you would see the glory of God put on full display, come here. Do you desire to see the glory of God? Do you desire to say, God, show me yourself, show me yourself, show me yourself? Maybe this morning what you need to do is repent and say, God, I just haven't really cared lately. I've been stagnant. I've been apathetic. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to look and gaze into your glory. Show me your glory. Do you earnestly desire to see and experience it? The third and final question I would ask you is, is it your grand desire for God to be glorified in you? Is it your grand desire to say, God, let me be a telescope for your name? Let me be a, just an avenue where your glory is revealed. Is it your desire for God to use you in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood? Is it your desire that through your life God would be glorified? Is that the main aim of your thought? Do you truly desire for him to be magnified in and through you? Maybe this morning you've lost sight of that. Maybe you can quote the Bible verse that you're to do all things for God's glory, but you think very little about God being magnified in your life. Friends, hear me. That is the whole reason you were created. Maybe this morning you just need to cry out to the Lord and say, God, glorify your name in me. Make your name known in the world through me. The point of all of it, from Jesus' life to the cross, from your life to my life to all of creation, is to glorify God. The question is, is, does your life do that?